welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus Podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These scientists, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. In today's episode, I interview my dear friend and Femtech Focus co-founder, Dr. Julie Hakim. Julie is a pediatric gynecologist and the inventor of the first vaginal stint. Don't know what a vaginal stint is or why we ladies need it? Well, listen to this awesome conversation I have with Julie about her experience working with adolescent girls and her courage to do what was best for her patients, even if she was scared as hell to do it. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm already excited. It's it's so fun, you know. Like we're in this in this crazy journey. How many times? I remember texting you when I was in Mexico City. Oh, yes. You know, here we are. Welcome to the show, Dr. Julie Hakeem. Thanks for being here. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a fun journey with you and honestly a privilege uh, to sit and talk with you about basically our favorite topic. Yep. This is uh, actually my dear friend here, Julie. Um, We've been talking about femtech for years for years and now we just co-founded Femtech Focus and so it makes total sense for her to be the first guest on our podcast because Julie, um, unlike myself, I've actually never technically worked in Femtech. I've, I've mentor Femtech founders, but Julie is actually in the trenches of women's health and wellness and so I really want to get into that today. Um, Julie, tell us about your background. Well, first, I want to say, Brittany, like it is, like I said, it's just amazing to be here. We've talked about, we've had so many conversations about this, you know, over over food, over drinks, over coffee, over text in different cities. And it's just an amazing journey with you. It's super fun to be here. Um, I just, like I said, favorite topic ever. Favorite so. topic. We love to talk about vaginas. I know. I'm happy to share. Um, Background-wise, I'll start from the beginning, and then we can work backwards. So uh, right now, I am an assistant professor in pediatric gynecology, and I work at Texas Children's Hospital here in Houston. Um, Every day is a total uh, privilege to go to work. It's an amazing journey. I absolutely love all my patients. I love caring for them. They make me happy. They make me passionate. Um, they are just unique and beautiful humans full of vulnerability and all the things that come with being, uh, young people. And honestly, I love what I do. I love what I do every day, even when it's stressful and when it's hard and when there's no PPE and this, that, Mm -hmm. and the other thing, it's, it's a great journey to walk with them through their, you know, trials and tribulations of being a young woman who is developing. Did you always Uh, want to be a doctor? Yeah, I always wanted to be a doctor, um, though my path was not necessarily linear in any way towards uh, medicine. Um, I think uh, 
you know, if I had to encapsulate who I am, I'm just this like hopeful underdog. And I think that's, that's kind of where I've come from. That's why you and I relate so much. (laughs) That's why we, you and I relate so much. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, my journey to medicine was, like I said, it was, um, sideways this way, that way, backwards, forwards. Um, I be, I went to pre-med, so I'm Canadian and a transplant to Houston for the past five years. And, uh, in Canada, I did, I went into pre-med thinking, yeah, I'm going to medicine. This is what I wanted. I couldn't imagine anything else. And then I flunked my first year and, um, I didn't, I just actually didn't know how to study. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, high school was relatively easy and I kind of didn't know how to put things together and just didn't like the people that were in my pre-med class. Um, anyways, I pivoted. I did what I loved and I changed my degree completely. And I went into African studies because I absolutely love history and politics and culture and the intersections of all of that. Um, I never gave up on my dream of medicine and, uh, applied and was told no. And I was told no, uh, a lot. And, um, Finally, I applied to a school in French, um, a medical school in French. I didn't actually speak in, French. In Canada? Well. In Canada? It was in Canada, yeah. Okay. Um, I actually didn't speak French all that well, but um, managed to get an interview. And I basically had sort of three months to figure out how to speak French enough to go in there <laughs> and tell a vision of why they should take this Anglophone kid in their francophone program and what I would bring to their program and do it in a language that I didn't really speak. And, uh, that conversation went really well and got in and I would have to hand it to my classmates. Honestly, I really struggled in French. Um, and they really helped. Obviously I was anglophone. They helped a lot to translate for me and um, the patients were so um, just generous with their time, Mm. you know, like I obviously couldn't communicate that efficiently. So, you know, that, that story of triumph kind of reminds me of femtech because it's like, we know mm -hmm. we need this, but it's, Mm -hmm. it takes some one-on-one meetings to convince people that femtech is important and should be invested in and moved forward. And so you were like built for the femtech movement (laughs) before you even knew it. I think I was built for, um, harnessing inherent passion and, Mm not having that grit that you're going to move it forward in whichever way it's going to come, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and learning that no is just another word for, I'm going to figure out some other way. And whether it's learn a language, I have to talk to 700 people. I have to do whatever it's going to take. Perseverance, perseverance and resilience. Yeah. What made you go into women's health and wellness? So you go to medical school, and at what point did you decide, I want to be an OBGYN? And in particular, you work with pediatric. You work with young girls. So was that like an additional decision? Yeah, it was. I I mean, I love OBGYN because I really just love all of the transitions that women go through. And I felt the most passionate and the most aligned when I was dealing with women's issues And I also love to operate. Um, So, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be in the operating room and I wanted to be in the the delivery room. 
um, operating is just high speed problem solving. That's all it is. Right. It's, it, it's pattern recognition, um, fast paced and a and high tolerance for blood. A high to- yeah, and a high tolerance <laughs> for discomfort, right? Yeah. I mean, you get more comfortable, but I think medicine in general teaches you how to have, um, be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Residency is not easy in any stretch of the imagination. And then, yeah, I felt the most aligned with a certain population of patients, and that happens to be the adolescent and sort of, you know, I love the nine to 17 year olds. Those are my favorite humans. And so in clinics, you know, those were the patients I always wanted to see. So it was a natural extension Mm -hmm. to pediatric gynecology. And I decided um, from Canada that I knew that I wanted to leave. Um, There's critical moments in your life when you look back and you just trusted your gut. And Mm -hmm. my gut was I needed to see something more. So I came down to Houston. Um, Houston has an amazing pediatric and adolescent gynecology fellowship. So fellowship is two extra years of subspecialty training. And um, I was their first Canadian. I was really the first Canadian. I was the first in my medical school kind of group to leave and really do an international fellowship by and large. And uh, honestly, it was a privilege to get in and I have loved it ever since. Don't get me wrong. The two years of fellowship were really hard mm-hmm. basically the hardest I ever worked in my entire life yeah um, but through that I learned a lot about myself and what I can tolerate what you know how much can you withstand and then I also learned what I wanted going forward and how I could be a better person to the people who came after me how could I be a better mentor and physician and saw what I didn't want so I knew what I wanted to be did you do you think that because you're working with adolescent girls that allowed you to persevere even more right it wasn't like you're working on something you weren't passionate about so when you were exhausted did you think about specific patients and they got you through the day absolutely I think there are definitely patients that you connect with and if you're not connecting to what you're doing it's easy to lose passion. It's easy to lose focus. And yeah, my journey to um, developing stents, my journey into research, um, as you heard, I don't have a background in engineering or math or science or pre-med or biochem or anything. And yet coming through fellowship, I found this passion for creating this medical device, but also really thinking outside the box. I had so many times where people were my favorite saying and people would laugh at me because my favorite saying was, there has to be a better way to do this. Mm. And even without any of that background, I was able to um, carve a place for myself at Texas Children's where half of my time is clinical and half of my time is basic science. And then half of my time, um, because there's always 150% of every day, (laughs) my time is... uh, is translational research. So what's translational research for those who don't know what's translational research? Yeah. So that's a a beautiful saying where you basically translate the intersection of bench research. So research in a lab um, to humans. And I've been able to find this really sweet spot where I have a clinical practice that I'm super passionate about. I have basic science research that helps me answer the questions 
that I find in clinical practice that I'm passionate about. And then I take all of that and I put it actually into research that is in humans outside of the uh, lab space. Yeah. So you you really are making such a big impact on, on every single angle. Um, you alluded to it. So let's just jump into it. The vaginal stint. You are the inventor of a vaginal stint. Please tell our listeners, what is a stint? Why does the vagina need one? And why didn't there, why wasn't there one before? <laughs> I think, you know, stents are basically my favorite topic. Um, I've been talking about stents for the last five years. And to me, it's honestly still crazy that it's a conversation because I still can't believe it doesn't exist. So, yeah, so a stent is, in medicine, anything that keeps a certain lumen. So a lumen is could be an artery. It could be basically a cylinder, right? There's the body is, if you look at the different patterns, the body is made up of different organs that have tubes that need to stay open. Mm -hmm. So it could be, you know, the kidney tubule, it could be the ureter, it could be the esophagus, it could be the trachea, whatever, it doesn't matter. There are different organs that need to stay open for Mm -hmm. certain reasons. Well, the vagina is basically uh, a lumen or a cylinder like any other, and it needs to stay open at certain times, right? The natural habitat of the vagina is to be collapsed on itself. So there are certain reasons that you would want the vagina to stay open. Um, and some of those reasons are after surgery. Um, and some of those reasons include after some other type of insult to the vagina. And that could be after radiation. And so radiation, like cancer, cancer radiation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All those women who are getting radiated in their pelvises, not only radiation in their, in their vaginas, but let alone you have colorectal cancer, whatever you're going to get radiated. Well, that vaginal tissue is just not going to be the same after that Mm. level of result. Um, so when I was in fellowship, I started realizing that there actually weren't any vaginal stents. We were operating on these girls. We were, you know, and girls need vaginas to be operated on for any number of reasons. Some, there are some girls that actually don't have a vagina or that have a abnormal vagina and we need to repair it. There are girls that are injured. So we're, you know, doing all of these complex surgeries and then there was, and then realizing that there were poor outcomes. These girls were having scarring in their vaginas. Why are they scarring? Well, we didn't have the reason, we didn't have the means to prevent the scarring from happening. Why didn't we have the means? Well, we didn't have a way for the vagina not to collapse on itself mm. once we repaired it. So here we are at the, you know, one of the top children's hospitals in North America and what we were doing to keep girls vaginas open is basically handcraft a stent. And so what we would do is we take these, you know, examination gloves, we cut the finger off of it, we stuff it with gauze, we tie it with a suture and then we put this thing in and we tell these girls just, you know, keep your legs closed for two weeks and wear Spanx and hope this thing doesn't fall out. Wow. And parents were scared, you know, like that's the only thing keeping my daughter's vagina to heal properly. And obviously the kids were uncomfortable and that thing was, I can tell you being on the other end of the pager, that thing was falling out all the time. Mm. And then they don't want to, you know, patients don't want to put it back in without your assistance. And yeah. so there was emergency rooms. Anyways, it was really a situation. And I kept thinking, why is nobody dealing with this? 
You know, why, why are we like stuffing fingers and gloves and, um, you know, calling that a stint and kind of hoping for the best, you know? Um, yeah, that sounds like, uh, like it wouldn't be coming out of the Texas medical center that what you, a medical device was made out of a finger out of a glove with cotton balls inside. That's crazy. Exactly. And when I started looking into it, I realized that obviously we weren't the only medical center doing it, you know, like people were kind of jimmying whatever they could to keep these girls vaginal cavities open, you know, it was like MacGyvering the best approach. And, uh, then when I looked into it, I realized, okay, there's actually a whole other subset of women, all those women after radiation, like I talked about that nobody really talks about their vaginas after. Huh, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's wonderful and it's amazing and great in terms of healthcare advancements that so many women are surviving their cancer treatments now. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we say, great, we cured you. Go off and and live. Uh-huh. But your vaginas are, are scarred. And so what, it, you know, you cured their cancer, but what about the rest of their quality of life? To let our listeners understand the, the, impact of having a scarred vagina what are some of the you know consequences of having scarring in the vagina because of there's no stint yeah that's a great question so i mean from a you know young ladies point of view from the girls that i see in clinic i mean scar tissue can lead to things like not only having to redo the operation right how do you get rid of a scar well you have to excise it um so so often we have to redo some of these surgeries Mm -hmm. These girls actually have so much scarring that they can't actually let menstrual fluid pass out, pass through their vaginas, right? It comes from their uterus. It has to pass through their vaginas, but it gets trapped. And so they have a lot of pain. They get a lot of infections. Um, And then let alone, you know, can't tolerate exams. You know, girls need at some uh, point are going to need a pap smear to look for cervical cancer. Well, you can't examine them. Same thing for adult women or women having intercourse. You know, imagine if you had scarring and you were trying to have comfortable, let comfortable, let alone pleasurable, mm-hmm. comfortable intercourse. How? When you have scarring that needs to be broken up. Oh, God. You know, yeah. And, and yeah. You imagine that. So basically at this, at the summary of all of that, I figured out, okay, we somebody needs to do something about this stent issue. And, um, if no one else is doing it, let it be me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, um, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And I think, you know, not having a background in science or engineering, what did I know about making prototypes? I can tell you, you know, on one hand, zero. I knew zero. <laughs> but I just knew it needed to be made. And I think the when you step back and you look at your journey in life and you think, wow, what opportunities came to me, and I'm so glad I recognized them as they were coming. Um, Even in in hindsight, you know, there's a couple of key moments in life where you realize that people have come into your life at precisely the right time. And so I met, I had this idea, um, I knew we needed a stent, and I met this amazing human being um, whose name is uh, Dr. Billy Cohen. And uh, he is obviously a legend in Houston. Um, and he's also a man with a very open uh, open approach to life, not only to his own life, but as he says, I always have my kimono open. Um, and 
So I know I needed to make this prototype and I basically didn't have any clue how to do it. I thought at the time, oh, I probably should, you know, maybe 3D print this thing because I need to make rapid iterations. Well, mm-hmm. did I know how to use it or no? <laughs> so uh, what I did is I literally Googled um, Texas Medical Center 3D printer and clicked enter. And whose name came up first was Billy Combs. Uh-huh. And um, at the time, he was at Texas Heart. And he had a 3D printing, uh, 3D printer in his lab uh, downstairs where he's working on heart valves and heart pumps. And so I literally picked up the phone. Thank God I didn't know who he was. It's like the most embarrassing story now, but thank <laughs> God I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, I picked up the phone and um, I said, "Hi, you don't know, you don't know me. I'm a Canadian. I have this idea, and I need a 3D printer." can I come and talk to you? And this man was so generous. He said, absolutely, come and talk. So I went over there and he's a cardiologist. What does he need to know about vaginas? But he was open enough. And uh, I went in there, I told him my idea, I told him what I needed. And he said, come on down, let me show you the printer. I didn't tell him I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> um, <laughs> he showed me his printer and then another human was came into my existence and that was Alex Smith. And Alex Smith is now, uh, was at uh, working in Billy Cohen's lab and is now a biodesign fellow at, with uh, at CDI, Center for Device Innovation and um, TMCX. And um, Alex, uh, Billy Cohen introduced me to Alex, who was his grad student. And he said, I was just talking to Alex about how we needed more vagina projects. So why don't you two work together? (laughs) Perfect. I wish everyone said that. We need more vagina projects. We need more vagina projects in this cardiology lab. And so anyways, Alex and I went on this journey. We created some prototypes. And then I um, realized I had to be fearless because things don't happen without seed funding. Mm. So I found a pitch competition for pediatric devices and applied and got in and uh, had no idea again what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I literally Googled, how do you do a medical device pitch? Um, like the oh, week Google. before. Google, the best MBA. Oh, Google. <laughs> I found some videos. I learned what I needed to say and how I needed to spin and uh, went up there and pitched and walked away with enough money to hire a prototyping company and that started the journey and there we go now these stints which were an idea in my mind uh five years ago are being ready to go to a clinical trial and uh i am so excited for when these come on the market and women do not have to stuff fingers up amazing absolutely amazing i could cry seriously thinking about all the girls with scar tissue and the women that just survived any kind of pelvic area cancer and you know should feel grateful to be alive but they're totally uncomfortable and their marriage may fall apart or you know their just personal wellness is is hindered due to something that could have been avoided by a stint and julie i just thank you so much for jumping off that ledge is because you said you're not an engineer, you're not a medical device, you're not a bioengineering major, right? But you were just like, this is a need women have to have, they have to have this. And um, let me ask you a few other questions. First of all, what's the timeline? Do you think that will, it'll, you know, you're saying it's going to be in clinical trials soon. What's the timeline for when we can expect women and girls to actually be getting these stints in surgery? 
Do you have any idea? Well, the clinical trial is two years. Two um, years, okay. So, I mean, it's a year of, you know, prep beforehand, and then it's going to be a year of this trial. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have, we'll be able to file for FDA, you know, submission even before the end of the trial. There's going to be tons of work to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm hoping that within, you know, two to three years that this thing is going to be on the market and ready to go. Perfect. Okay. Um, I always expect the best mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. my default my default is always to expect the best and then um plan as it comes yeah. so why, I, i'm always hopeful why do you think that this thing wasn't invented yet you know it's a great question um there were there was a type of stent that used to exist on the market and it was just it was just terrible and got taken off the market um, almost 10 years ago. And it was, you know, marketed as a vaginal stent. It didn't fit. It didn't work. And when that line got recalled from the one manufacturer that made it, nobody ever took up the initiative to make a better one. Um, why, you know, it's a great dovetail into what we're doing with Femtech. Like, why is that not talked about? You know, Mm -hmm. it, wouldn't be that the conversation about women's vaginas after cancer therapy is only now something that's discussed as openly as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I guess I can't speak to why it hasn't been invented, but I can only speak to what are we doing going forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that one of the major issues for the vaginal stint in femtech at large is this lack of awareness of women's needs. And that could be perpetuated due to a lack of comfort of people talking about vaginas or comfortable sex or, you know, their menstruation patterns. And so due to the lack of communication about those topics, we don't know the problems that exist. So therefore, no one thinks it's something that needs a solution. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think women are just kind of used to, on some level, just kind of either thinking that they're terminally unique, like this problem is mm. only happening, um, not talking about it um, openly. And, and um, you know, the conversations are not only for education and making women aware, but mm. also we shouldn't be the first people, as you've said before, you know, we shouldn't be the first people saying vagina in an open conversation or in a boardroom or in mm. whatever. You know, I have lots of people coming up to me and saying, do you realize how many times you say vagina? And I say, yeah, I do. And it's perfect. And <laughs> um, in fact, I should say it more. In fact, why aren't you saying it? You know? Um, so yes, I think the conversations, the education, the awareness, the relevance, mm-hmm. right? I think uh, it's one of my favorite words recently is making women's health relevant, not only to women, not only to women, to then broader, mm-hmm. right? I think mm-hmm. you and I were in a conversation with a number of other women and we were talking about vulvas. And within that group of, let's say, 10 women, what is a vulva was, um, you know, very apparent that that was a question that actually a, most, a lot of the women in that room had. And we were there yes. to talk about, we were there to talk about um, femtech. So it wasn't like just a random group of women. It was women that are passionate about women's health and wellness, and they still didn't know what a right. vulva was. Yeah. Right. So even women who are, you know, 
educated or have access to education or who, who are well read or who are whatever, you know, list the adjective, mm -hmm. um, who are also primed, as you said, for that conversation, mm -hmm. you know, the question, you know, the questions were as almost as basic, not to say irrelevant or not, not important, but as basic as, Hey, I'm a woman of Southeast Indian descent. I'm a whatever, you know, pick a color. Mm -hmm. Wait, is your, is your vagina pink too? You know, like mm -hmm. even at that level was, you know, missing pieces of information. So yeah. I think femtech as a whole, yes, the conversations and the relevance need to be first within ourselves and then we make it relevant and inevitable and absolute and a need to the greater community, the greater public, the greater, you know, whatever institution. Yeah. Well, Julie, we, um, on this podcast, we like to ask all of our guests a question and you've kind of tapped on the answer. So I'm going to refine the question a little bit, but what do you think is the number one need of the femtech community right now? You know, so I, th I think we've talked a, a little bit about conversations, right? And I think that conversation, both on a sort of grassroots, you know, muscle initiative of conversations amongst women, conversations not only amongst women, but amongst men as well. So conversations, yes, but a top-down also framework, um, I think, you know, to kind of organize these conversations, right? And organize what comes out of the conversations more importantly. Um, I think there's a lot of women who are amazing, not only women, there's men too, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we salute them. We celebrate them as much as, as, as anything who are working on initiatives that move the needle forward for women. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is done, you know, like you have to really Google, um, and find who those people are. Mm -hmm. Or not only that, you know, there's redundancies that are become apparent, right? Yeah. You know, I think organic tampons, like we've, we've kind of, you know, covered that. There are <laughs> other issues. <that laughs> we need a stint, y'all. We need a stint. <laughs> you know, there's, there's other things, yeah. you know, there's other major needs, macro and micro level of women that, that aren't being um, addressed. So I think it's not only the conversations, it's the organization, but then, you know, you and as you and I know, you know, you need alignment. You need alignment, not only for like our strategic content, right? Mm. But the alignment has to be, how do you make Femtech really value added for those that are going to help bring bring things forward, mm -hmm. right? Stakeholder mm -hmm. institutions, funding agents, you know, yes, there's some great, huge granting agencies that are out there. But there are also needs, you know, locally within Houston, whatever, writ large, even within North America. Like you have to make your conversation, your needs as a group relevant and value added to, to others in order for them to kind of see, well, why do I need to listen to this? Exactly. Yeah. You because know? you and I could be passionate about femtech and talk about it all we want. But, you know, when we need powerful people to say the word vagina. Oh. Right. Yeah. In, in an appropriate context way. Right. We need a powerful people, whether that's political, um, financial, um, just, you know, people empowered need to talk about the importance of women's health and wellness. And, um, you know, I want to encourage women that are struggling with something and they think they're terminally unique to to talk out about it, because 
They're more than likely not terminally unique. It's probably an issue a lot of women are suffering with. And we also need to respond accordingly, right? So that the women aren't shamed and uh, continue to speak out about their needs. Um, I'll end our podcast with a, a story for our listeners about how you and I know each other. Um, so I was speaking at Rice University in a life science entrepreneurship class um, about my last company and my experience as a founder. And uh, Julie came up to me after class in her scrubs. And uh, how many years ago is this? Three years, maybe? Yeah, for a while. Three yeah, years, maybe? And yeah. so um, Julie comes up to me in her scrubs after the class and says, I have an idea and I'm really struggling with it. Can I buy you a coffee? And I said, of course, let's do it. And so we got together. She brought her dog, which is always huge points for me. And we got a coffee and she was telling me about vaginal stints and how women's vaginas are essentially healing shut after surgery or radiation. Um, there's divorce rates after women survive cancer because the shop is closed. Girls are struggling having a vagina and it's painful and that you were inventing the first stint, but the journey's so hard and you wonder if you should keep going. And I literally, like, I couldn't even sit in my own seat because I was like, you must do this. This is so important. Like, how can I help you do this? And that was, uh, that was the day we got connected. And since then, I've just been the biggest advocate of Julie and We've just been talking about vaginas and uh, labias um, and vulvas ever since. And now, you know, we're, we're pioneering this femtech movement together. It, you know, that was one of those moments, right, Brittany, when you stand back and, and you look at your life. And I think I can count on, you know, my two hands. Where are those moments where your life pivots, mm -hmm. right? When you look back, like, this was where my life took a turn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, meeting you and, and, and feeling that, uh, you know, that gut instinct, right, also is a critical mm -hmm. gut. You know, you have a clinical gut. You also have a life gut. Um, and my, you know, developing that gut and knowing that you were somebody I needed to meet, right? You didn't know me from Adam. That whole room was full of people. Um, but somehow you just, I just knew I have to ask this person out for coffee, Right. Mm -hmm. I think it also comes back to being unafraid, mm -hmm. like you have to be unafraid of putting yourself out there and saying to yourself, how am I? Everybody is every you can learn something from everybody. Mm -hmm. What can I learn from this opportunity? What can I learn from this person where what synchronicity is going to happen out of this conversation and yeah. be unafraid to put yourself out there? Mm. Um, asking you for coffee was like a great moment in my life because it started this other journey that mm -hmm. I think is going to be so important for, you know, for, for us, for Houston, for women, for, you know, yeah. it's, it's a wonderful, um, it's just a wonderful blessing, right? Wow. Julie, it is so awesome to chat with you. I'm so grateful for you being our first guest on the Femtech Focus podcast. We are have this amazing lineup of innovators, doctors, policymakers, thought leaders, academics, like all over the place. We're going to come on and talk about women's health and wellness, but I'm so grateful you are our first one because honestly, you are one of my first inspirations for Femtech in general. And um, I'm, I just thank you for your time, Julie. You are so welcome. And I, and I want to end on this, on this little note. 
because I think we both embody this. And I think there's a lot of people that, you know, in this time of, uh, you know, kind of uncertainty that are also struck looking for this mm -hmm. and, you know, having a fulfilling life or under feeling fulfillment, you know, when you find that intersection of what you're passionate about, what people need, what you're good at, and find your mission in that and your vocation, if it can align with it too, you know, that's, the, that's the journey of fulfillment. And I think you and I have both found this area where we love what we do. We're excited about it every day. We can't wait to talk to more people about femtech and vaginas and all the needs that are out there and how do we build this thing and move it forward. Um, anyways, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be on this journey with you. Thanks, Julie. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Julie Hakim. What a freaking inspiration. I hope you feel a little bit more encouraged to say the word vagina. And if you don't know what a vulva is, look it up and then tell your friends. Because awareness and communication are key to improving women's health and wellness. If you've enjoyed hearing Julie's work with vaginal stints and want to keep hearing more femtech stories, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it. Until next time, keep innovating and remember, improving women's health improves everyone's health. Later.